You're listening to the Naked Bible Podcast. To support this podcast, go to nakedbiblepodcast.com and click on the support link in the upper right-hand corner. If you're new to the podcast and Dr. Heiser's approach to the Bible, click on New Start Here at nakedbiblepodcast.com. Welcome to the Naked Bible Podcast, episode 368, Revelation for part three. I'm the layman, Trace Strickland, and he's the scholar, Dr. Michael Heiser. Hey, Mike. Well, how are you doing this week? I'm doing fine. Um, but, you know, I've I've heard that Texas is overrun with Neanderthals. You guys are Neanderthals. You yeah. know, I, when I heard uh, that the president say that after Texas opened up, I thought, well, that's just, that's just really unfortunate timing because it would have been great to interview Josh Swamidas today because yeah. then we could really talk about like living Neanderthals. Well, we can still point people back to those two episodes, but uh, yeah, <laughs> as one of the Neanderthals speaking um, here, representing uh, all Neanderthals in Texas, uh, you know, we appreciate that. We actually, what does that say about us that we actually take that as a compliment? <laughs> uh, I don't know. I, yeah. I, you know, what does that mean? <laughs> I don't. I don't know. I don't know that I want to touch that, but. <laughs> Yeah, I, I guess I that's better than than having Josh on here and talking about Neanderthal interbreeding or something. You know, yeah. probably yeah, got, less offensive. I got friends on Facebook and whatnot changing their uh, profile pictures to Neanderthals, you know, headshots <laughs> and stuff. And it's just like, well, we're pretty proud of that. Like that's a badge of honor to be called that. So, uh, no hurt feelings over here. Uh, any any sports franchise is going to change their name. Oh, that'd be perfect. Yeah, that's a perfect uh, excuse to change your name. Yeah. But I'm sure somebody well, maybe uh, people maybe people could, would forget about the Cowboys. You know, of a year ago, ooh, if they just changed it easy. to the Dallas Neanderthals. Easy. If we start winning, <laughs> I don't think people would complain. But yeah, that's true. Yeah. Well, Mike, we uh, any Neanderthals in Revelation four today? No, this is the last no, not- part. Of, of chapter four. Yeah. Is there anything in the Bible? No, I, I, no. I looked, I looked, but I couldn't find any. Yeah. <laughs> Unsuccessful there. That's unfortunate. But it doesn't have Texas doesn't in mean... there. It doesn't have Texas in no. the Bible. Really? Cause no. there's lots of Texans no. think that Texas is in the Bible. Well, you know, I made no, that you're going to have so, to correct them. It's yeah. tell them the book of revelation is all about America, not just Texas. How's oh, that? okay. Well, us Texans only yeah. think about Texas, not really. The union, so right. you know we're yeah. a little just just like just like a lot of people conflate Israel and America. You guys conflate America and Texas, right? Yeah. There you go. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. <laughs> I'm, I'm saying Texas is the new Israel. Is that what I'm saying? <laughs> filled with the filled with the Neanderthals, <laughs> boy. Yeah, I'll, uh, I'll look for this. I'll look for this on an Ancient Aliens episode to come. Uh, yeah, we'll probably get that. Giorgio, some... if you're listening, there you go. You can, you know, you can thank me later. Maybe, maybe I get a royalty for that. I'm waiting for another show to quote our show or do something like that. That'd be, you know, wouldn't that be fun if we popped up <laughs> on The Simpsons or, you know, something random? That'd be awesome. Be well, part of pop culture. So you you think of the fun side. I think of, you know, it's it sort of makes the hair on the back of my neck stand up but you know, yeah no i get what all people that. might do <laughs> yeah lots of people are like this is a bible show y'all don't need to talk about sports and aliens and stuff it's like well see now we're including neanderthals so we're widening we got the ne- I, yeah 
but we're going to get some blowback. I'm going to get some emails chewing me out for having too much fun oh. on the Bible show. All right. What? All right. Well, well, we don't want you to have any more fun, so let's just start into Revelation 4. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Uh, all right. Yeah, this is part three. Um, you know, as it worked out, you know, this is this just the way things fell. I, I didn't want to loop chapter five in here. So we're going to do a discrete episode on chapter five to wrap up these two that are, you know, this divine council throne room scene. We're going to spend today really just co- covering a couple of verses that deal with one item, and that is the 24 elders. So I'm going to just read where they show up in chapter four. I mean, they're, they're going to pop up in chapter five too, but you know, by then we'll have already have covered it. So Revelation 4, 4 says, around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. Then if you skip ahead a little bit, you hit verses 9 and 10, the first first part of verse 10, which read, and whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. So the, the question is kind of obvious here. You know, who or what are the 24 elders? And there are two possible trajectories in the Old Testament for the language uh, here, the elder language, though not really the number, at least in, in terms of being explicit. So I'm going to quote here, um, you know, just to sort of summarize the, the two trajectories, or at least, you know, get us into this this part. I'm going to quote uh, Owen's commentary again in Revelation 1 through 5, his first of three volumes in the Word Biblical Commentary series. He says, There are two Old Testament passages in which a group of elders is depicted as present before Yahweh. Number one, Isaiah 24, 23, which describes an eschatological event. Then he quotes it. For the Lord of hosts will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem. And before his elders, he will manifest his glory. And secondly, Exodus 24, 9 and 10. That's the narrative of the 70 elders who accompanied Moses up to Mount Sinai, where they had a vision of God. And On says the author may have derived his conception of 24 elders surrounding the heavenly throne of God from these two passages, or may at least be alluding to them. And that's the end of his quote. Now, Again, those are the two sort of directions you could go. Obviously, well, maybe not obviously, but if you've read Unseen Realm, you know that I take Isaiah twenty four twenty three as describing uh, celestial elders, supernatural beings, you know, divine counsel, not humans. And of course, Exodus 24, you do have humans. We have Moses and Aaron and Nadav and Avihu and the 70 elders. You know, they, they go up Mount Sinai and they see the God of Israel and have a feast, have a meal. So... We have sort of a celestial, divine, and a human trajectory, one of one of each. And it, it, you know, these are the two paths you could go. Now, just a, a heads up, I'm going to suggest at, at, at one point here, when we go through the material, that you don't really need the dichotomy. Uh, the dichotomy is a bit of a false dichotomy. But for the sake of starting off, there you go. Now, the identity of the elders, Beale writes, um, all right, wait, this is not, this is Baumgarten. I brought in an article, Joseph Baumgarten, uh, who wrote an article called the Duodecimal Courts. Duodecimal was a term that refers to 12, 12 themes. The Duodecimal Courts of Qumran 
Revelation and the Sanhedrin. It's from the Journal of Biblical Literature. Uh, it's a 1976 article. So he, he makes the comment that the identity of the elders, quote, has been one of the longstanding and still unresolved problems in the interpretation of Revelation, unquote. So Beale, sort of building off that, summarizes the interpretive options adduced by scholars. Now, again, you have these two trajectories, but uh, you know the two trajectories have produced a, a number of interpretive you know, approaches to this. So Beale writes, now a heavenly entourage around the throne is pictured in Revelation 4. The elders have been variously identified as one, stars from an astrological background, two, angels, three, Old Testament saints, that would be people, you know, the righteous, four, angelic heavenly representatives of all saints, both Old and New Testament, five, patriarchs and apostles representing the Old Testament and New Testament saints, again, the righteous together, and six, representatives of the prophetic revelation of the 24 books of the Old Testament. That, of course, that would be according to the Hebrew or Hebrew arrangement and canon and all that. Now, nobody really spends much attention on that last one, so, and, I, and I'm not going to either, because the other ones are so, so much better options. Baumgarten observes that the, quote, the church fathers and ancient commentators generally took the 24 elders to be glorified saints and glorified righteous people. Some modern exegetes have tried to advance the view that they were angels. Recently, there has been a return to the former option, again, the, the glorified righteous saints, but no adequate rationale for the number 24 has been offered. So, unquote. Again, Baumgarten basically saying we've got problems here. Now, consequently, most of the discussion about the 24 elders has been oriented to really the second through the fifth options. Angels, Old Testament saints, angelic representatives of all the saints in both testaments, or patriarchs and apostles, again, also representing Old and New Testament saints. So those options two through five, so four options there. And that's really where the discussion lives. And at, and at times, the distinctions between them are pretty blurred. Now, each of those options has some connection to the Old Testament. After all, this series is the old, you know, the book of Revelation's use of the Old Testament. Uh, all of these have, have some connection to the Old Testament. And Beale sort of is illustrative where, where he kind of lands. You're going to see that, that the lines are blurred uh, in, the, in the list that he himself gave. He writes, the elders certainly include reference to Old Testament and New Testament saints. So he's going that way. They are either angels representing all saints or the heads of the 12 tribes together with the 12 apostles, representing thus all the people of God. So he, he kind of merges two or three of these options. Beale you know, supports his reasoning uh, in this regard by noting that earlier in the book, a close relationship between angels and the people of God is suggested via the lampstand imagery, which applies to the churches and in its Old Testament source, Zechariah 4, divine beings in the presence of God. He also notes, again, Beale also notes the white garments and crowns worn by the elders. Okay, they're, that's what they're wearing. These are items associated with human believers who keep their faith until the end. And again, this is well-traveled turf in the last few episodes, but the allusion here specifically is to Revelation 2.10, Revelation 3.4, and 3.11. And then, again, to follow that, he writes this. 
Beale says, the readers are given a look into heaven to see that the saints of old, together with the deceased Christians who have persevered, can think of the white robes and crowns here. That's how he's tying in the, the martyrs here. The readers are given a look into heaven to see that the saints of old, together with deceased Christians who have persevered, have received the heavenly reward of crowns, white clothing, and kingship. The readers can be assured that they too will receive a like reward if they are faithful to the end. In Revelation, angels never wear wear crowns or white clothing or sit on thrones. That one's debatable because, again, if that's where you fall with the 24 elders, he would not be correct there. But what what he's saying is that you'll never see the the word angel, you know, sitting on a throne. Okay, okay, that that much is fair, but it's a it's a bit of a misdirection. So back up here in Revelation, he says angels never wear crowns or white clothing or sit on thrones. But such descriptions are predicated only of saints, again the, the righteous, who are in heaven. He cites Revelation seven thirteen through fifteen, nineteen seven through eight, and nineteen fourteen. So they're predicated only of saints who are in heaven or of the saints' reward after death as a result of their perseverance. And here he cites Revelation 2.10, Revelation 3.4 and 5, 3.21, and chapter 20, verse 4. So that's where Beal lands. A little bit, a little bit of a blurring of distinction, but he's definitely, I'd say it's fair to say the majority of his thinking is sort of on, on, the, on the human trajectory, or at least the glorified human trajectory. Now, other scholars have opted for 12 representatives of, of Israel's original tribes and the 12 apostles by analogy to the two 12s of Revelation 21. So let's not forget about this 12 and 12 thing in Beale's list. And so some say, well, hey, look at Revelation 21, where the gates of the New Jerusalem correspond to the 12 tribes of Israel, but the foundations correspond to the apostles. So you got 12 and 12, obviously equaling 24. So the reasoning is that the new Jerusalem symbolizes the new Israel, comprised of the first people of God, Old Testament Israel, and the new Israel, the church. Okay, so this is, again, another notion that is sort of, you know, is on the human trajectory, but it's, it's more symbolic, the 12 and 12, the, the, the tribes and the apostles. Now, what Beale says and what, and again, what these other scholars would say, again, the, the predominantly human trajectory you know, all, all that is true, but there are outliers in the data. For example, members of God's council may lack crowns, but they do sit on thrones. That's Daniel 7, 9 through 10. And, and if we've learned anything about Revelation 4 up to this point, it tracks Daniel 7, like 14 points in the same order. And the celestial heavenly host in Daniel 7 is meeting. It's a divine council meeting. It's a divine courtroom and they have some participatory role in the in you know God making a decision here. They open the books, you know, the, the, all of these motifs that we've talked about before. So, yeah, okay, they don't have crowns, but they do have some authority here. They do have a participatory role. They participate in His governance and God's governance. Further, Isaiah twenty four twenty three. Make sure I get that number right. Isaiah twenty four twenty three. Yep references Yahweh's elders. Again, this is a passage I talk about in Unseen Realm. And I suggested there, and will continue to suggest, that the most plausible interpretation of that passage is Yahweh's celestial supernatural counsel, not human beings. Okay? 
Now, I reference an article in Unseen Realm by Timothy Willis in this regard. It, the title of it is Yahweh's Elders, Isaiah 24, 23, subtitle, Senior Officials of the Divine Court. Okay, that's a 1991 article. So let's, I'm going to drift back into that just a little bit here. You know, while there are Old Testament passages that suggest the eventuality of believers being glorified as members of the Heavenly Family Council, okay, well, while that idea is, is foreshadowed, that in the end, you know, believers will, I mean, just to, to quote Genesis 15, and this will take, take your minds back if you're a longtime podcast listener to our conversations with David Burnett about the star seed in Genesis 15, 6. When, when God takes Abraham out, shows him the stars of the sky, and he says, you know, your descendants, your offspring are going to be like the stars of heaven. And how that's not only a quantitative statement, but in Second Temple, Second Temple Judaism, and, and of course also suggested in the New Testament, it's also a qualitative statement. That eventually your seed, those who are the seed of Abraham, i.e. believers, are going to be like the stars of heaven, which were considered, again, you know, the sons of God, angels, okay, if you want to use that term. So, you know, that's true. There's this foreshadowing, but, but despite that, there's no explicit Old Testament reference to the idea sort of being current, like happening now or, or in the past or something that's already going on, like you get in the, in the New Testament. I mean, you, you get this language in Revelation, you know, four and five, you know, with the martyrs. You get it in Hebrews twelve, the cloud of witnesses, you know, they're enrolled in the, you know, among the, the you know, celestial you know, group in heaven. There, let, let me just quote Hebrews twelve here. Uh, we recently did an episode on this, but just to capture the wording again, uh, the whole cloud of witnesses uh, episode. But I think what's really important in that passage are. Verses 22 through 23. So verse 1, everybody knows, therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, blah, 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 blah. And we talked in that episode about what the cloud of witnesses means. And I think key to understanding it are verses 22 and 23 in the same chapter. But you, again, he's talking to believers, have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. And to God, the judge of all, the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Of course, this is the same book, Hebrews, back in Hebrews 2, where believers are introduced to God and God to believers in, in the midst of the congregation, the midst of the council. So, so we, we get the book of Hebrews and we get you know, other New Testament books that, that sort of have this already but, but not quite yet feel to it. But that goes beyond the Old Testament. Now, why am I belaboring this point? Because if the concept goes beyond the Old Testament, if all the Old Testament really offers here is a foreshadowing that that's going to be associated in the future with the Messiah, with the kingdom, the new Jerusalem, let's even throw a new covenant in there. Okay, that, that's what Daniel 12 would be talking about, the end of days. Okay, all the Old Testament can do is foreshadow this. Then, by definition, Yahweh's elders in Isaiah 24, 23 are not humans. That's the divine council, you know, made up of, of celestial beings only. That's the point. That's why I'm belaboring it. You know, Isaiah 24, 23 is prior to these New Testament passages and prior to Second Temple material, which makes it all the more likely a reference to the heavenly host council. Now, 
before I, well, I might as well just quote. Um, I think I have a little bit here from Willis. Make sure. Now, this is from this is what I said about Willis and Unseen Realm. So I'll, let me let me throw this out here. Uh, I, I wrote in Unseen Realm the inclusion of martyrs in the scene in Revelation six nine through eleven. A little bit later, seems to require that the elders are also distinct from glorified believers. Okay, if you actually go look at Revelation six nine through eleven, let's take a peek there. Revelation six nine. We're talking about outliers to Beals. You know, these are these are glorified righteous. Okay. And they're, they're, that, yeah, okay, what he said, how he defends that is okay, but again, he, he doesn't address the outliers. So in Revelation 6-9, we read, When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. Okay, there's the martyred righteous. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of the fellow servants and their brothers should be complete and who were killed, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Now, the, again, the, these, you know, souls of those, you know, you know, under the altar, this shows up in, in the Revelation 4 and 5 scene and, and they have to be distinct from the elders is the point. So that mars the, the neatness of what, Beale is arguing for in terms of the human trajectory. Uh, I'll say one more thing before moving on. The whole notion about the Old Testament foreshadowing, the the glorification of human beings, again, this qualitative concept that that believers will be made like the stars and so on and so forth. You know, this is actually really important because in Second Temple Jewish literature, this is a significant theme. Burnett, again, Dave Burnett, when we had him on, uh, we, we talked about a little bit about this, but if you really want the detail, you should go to my website, drmsh.com, and there's actually a blog series written by David Burnett on Paul's use of Genesis 15.5. You know, 15.5, uh, I think he's he is pretty restricted to 15.5, not, not 6. But Paul's use of Genesis 15.5 in Romans 4.18 in light of early Jewish deification traditions. So if you want, you know, the detail to this, how the, the promise given to Abraham is not just quantitative, but qualitative. and speaks of believers being glorified and being, you know, numbered among the, the stars of the divine council. But anyway, this is, a, this is important. It's an important idea because what it does is it, is it blurs both of those Old Testament trajectories. So what, where I'm going to wind up here is that there's no reason to pick, that we have to pick, oh, is it, is it, the, is it the glorified righteous or is it the, the divine council members? And the answer is, yeah. Yeah, because we are going to be members of the council. And the cloud of witnesses suggests that that's an already reality, but not yet. I mean, we're not at the end of days. We're not at ultimate glorification. Yeah, but these two things merge, and they get merged before the New Testament. The New Testament has this talk, you know, partakers of the divine nature. You know, you're already partakers of the divine nature. That, that's a passage in Peter. But yet we're not that glorified. You know, First John talks about our glorification. We, we have this already aspect and the not yet. And it's associated with, again, being members in God's heavenly family council. We are children and partners. Okay, this is what God wanted from the very beginning. So... In Second Temple literature, this idea, because people are looking back at Genesis 15.5, people are looking at other passages, 
and they come up with this, with the development of this concept. Now, On points out that Second Temple Jewish literature, again, has a lot of precedent for this, has precedent for seeing the elders that occupy thrones around God himself as being members of the heavenly host. And again, that's going to turn into, again, this sort of merging or including glorified human believers in it. So, But, but let's just start with, again, picking up on my, my slant here, because I, I think Isaiah 24, 23 does speak of, of non-human, you know, celestial divine council members. And, and so somebody like On would say, yeah, you know, there's, there's good evidence for that, too, in Second Temple literature. It's not just, you know, the human trajectory, although, again, we're going to loop that in. But On writes, a more conventional conception of the arrangement of heavenly beings who surround God on his heavenly throne is for them to flank the throne on the right and the left, as in 1 Kings 22. Again, very familiar divine counsel passage. There can be no doubt, however, that the author understands the 24 elders as encircling the throne. So he's just commenting on the posture here and the arrangement. For the location of many thrones near the throne of God, see Daniel 7, 9. Again, we already cited that. And for the conception of one or more thrones in each of a series of heavens, apparently occupied by an angelic leader, see, and then he lists uh, some, some passages, most of them for, are from the ascension of Isaiah, uh, 714, 719, 724, 720. I mean, to basically read Isaiah, ascension of Isaiah 7 and 8, a uh, little bit in chapter 9, a little bit in chapter 24, or chapter 11, excuse me. So it it's there. Now, where you get more of it, again, is when, when the human sort of the idea that, that human righteous are, are part of an angelic priesthood. That, that's at Qumran. We'll get to that in a moment. But, but that's where humans are looped into this. But the point here is that there are good reasons to take Isaiah 24, 23 as not including humans. And, and if that's the case, then why can't that idea be what John is thinking of in Revelation 4 and 5? He's thinking of Again, the celestial heavenly host in Isaiah 24, and he calls them elders. We've got Daniel 7, where God meets with his celestial council, and that is the model, that is, that is the, you know, that's the well from which Revelation 4 comes. So, so why do we have to go all of a sudden and say, well, these must be people, glorified people? Why can't they be just divine council members? So that's the other side of this. So Beale leans toward the human, and lots of people do. There's, there's this other argument for the divine, the celestial divine council. But again, as I've already hinted, these two things, are maybe they're, they're just not a necessary choice. Again, we don't have to really opt for one or the other. Again, does, does it really matter? I mean, because you're going to have plenty of, of data for both. You know, are the 24 elders of Yahweh's council human believers in heaven or celestial members of the heavenly host? In biblical thought, the question really seems like a moot one, because human believers are destined to be glorified and joined to the divine council. Now, this is a familiar idea to those of you who are familiar with my content, Unseen Realm, have listened to the podcast before. But I want to track through some of what I wrote and then go into uh, the Qumran material just to show you how these these things get merged or, or can be merged, or at least in the second temple period on in toward the first century that this is happening. So in the book of Revelation, let's just start there. Jesus is not only referred to as the morning star 
but he grants the morning star to believers. This is one thread. The implications are noteworthy. I wrote in Unseen Realm that the morning star phrase takes us back once more to the Old Testament, which at times uses astral terminology to describe divine beings. Job 38 is the best example. The morning stars were singing together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Stars were bright and in the worldview of the ancients, living divine beings since they moved in the sky and were beyond the human realm. The morning star language in Revelation 2.28 is messianic. It refers to a divine being who would come from Judah. We know this by considering two other passages in tandem. In Numbers 24.17, we read the prophecy that, quote, a star will go out from Jacob and a scepter will rise from Israel. Okay, that is not a reference to the to the birth star, okay, because the star goes out from Jacob. Okay, the birth star didn't, it, it's, it's not a reference to the thing in the sky because Jacob, the tribe of Jacob, isn't in the sky, okay? You know, it, this is, this is tribal talk. It, it, the word star is used to say, essentially, that a divine being, specifically a divine king, because it's from Judah, okay, will arise. A scepter will rise from Israel. Numbers 24.17, back to the quote, was considered messianic in Judaism, completely apart from the New Testament writers. In other words, literate readers of John's writing would have known the morning star reference was not about literal brightness. It was about the dawning of the returned kingdom of God under its Messiah. Later in the book of Revelation, Jesus himself refers to his messianic standing with the morning star language. Revelation 22.16, I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Later, I wrote, as Daniel says, the righteous, here's where we get the, you know, the righteous looped in again, the righteous will shine like the brightness of the sky above, like the stars forever and ever. Daniel 12, 2 and 3. Our inheritance of the nations with Jesus at the end of days, Revelation 3, 21, is in a glorified, resurrected, i.e. divine state. The star language of Genesis 15, again, has this eschatological connotation. Now, that thinking in Revelation where you have celestial being and, and glorified human being spoken of in the same way, in this case, authority in the kingdom. Think of the council. Think councils have authority, all right? Where you blur, or, or at least merge is the better word, the, 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 the deity divine, okay, Jesus with, with human you know, glorified believers. They're, they're members of the same body. Jesus you know, share, says that he'll grant to the one that overcomes to sit on his throne with him in Revelation 3. And he will share with them the morning star, Revelation 2. Again, this is inclusion in the council and it's inclusion in authority. Both sides, you know, start to, again, be blended here. This line of thinking is consistent with wider Second Temple Jewish thought that human believers, when glorified, will become members of God's heavenly entourage. This point of theology is well known from Second Temple Jewish sources and the literature of Qumran, especially, whose occupants saw themselves as an angelic priesthood. This belief in a presumed symbiosis between the earthly and heavenly priesthood servants of God may provide a point of connection to the number of the elders as well, which some suggest derives from the 24 priestly courses described in 1 Chronicles 23 and 24. Maybe that's where we get the 24. Maybe it's about a heavenly priesthood that is both divine, but also earthly. You know, like, okay, we've got, again, this merging going on. You know, consider the elements. 
just just think about the elements of the scene. Revelation 4 and 5 is based on Daniel 7, a council scene in which all authority is given to the Son of Man. Remember how Daniel 7 ends? All the authority is given to the Son of Man. The Son of Man, Jesus, is the morning star who shares his authority with human believers, specifically sharing his throne in Revelation 3.21. And he sets believers over the nations being judged in Revelation 2.26. To this, we could add the description in the book of Hebrews again, where believers are part of a great cloud of witnesses, which is language drawn from celestial court imagery in ancient covenants. These believers have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God. Oh, isn't that what's described in the book of Revelation? The new Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem. In Hebrews 12 has believers coming to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels and festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled. They are enrolled in heaven. And those believers will, as Paul says, judge angels. 1 Corinthians 6.3. And the point here is that a choice between glorified humans and celestial agents of the heavenly divine council isn't really necessary. The categories overlap. That's the point. So this is where, you know, at this point, you know, in the episode, this is where I'd say, this I, I think is a really good way to look at it. That the 24 elders, you know, okay, you got 12 and 12, 24, you know, I, I'm not, you know, I'm not bothered by the whole symbolic attempt here, but I think what, wherever you land on how you talk about the 24 elders, you need to affirm that the divine counsel, in terms of the supernatural character of it, is not denied. In other words, the humans don't squeeze, squeeze out the, 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 the divine elements here of the council. Rather, humans are included in the council. So however you want to talk about that, and again, you go back to Beale's five or six options, all the elements are there, both the celestial, again, the, if you want to use the word angelic element to the council, along with glorified humans. Yeah, they're, they're, all that stuff is there. So, so we need to find a way to talk about the 24 elders that includes both sides of the coin without squeezing one out of the other. Now, here's the wild card. What about the astral interpretation of the 24 elders? That was the first thing Beale listed. And I, I've mentioned this before. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, again, more or less just, just tell you where I'm going with this. The divine council in the Old Testament is described in very explicit astral language. And believers, glorified believers who will join the, the, the council, are described in very explicit astral language. Daniel 12 will shine as the stars. Genesis 15 you know, you'll be as the stars of the sky. Again, just go back and look at read, read through the Burnett series, and you get all the primary source data from the Second Temple period about this. In other words, Mike isn't making it up, and neither is Dave Burnett. This is how they were thinking about this kind of stuff, this star language associated with the Divine Council. So would it really be inconsistent if we also looked at the 24 elders astrally, okay, as astral talk? The short answer is, no, it wouldn't. In fact, that, that would sort of lend another perspective to the same things we're talking about. Divine counsel, in this case, made up of supernatural beings and glorified humans. And, and, and the way we telegraph this idea is, is, is the astral talk from the Old Testament. Okay. Now, you know, I don't, 
obviously we're not going to take time on, on this episode to go through all the astral talk of the Old Testament. I've just given you a few, you know, passages, you know, to think about. There are, of course, more. You know, we've we've had we've hit Daniel twelve here. We've hit Genesis fifteen five. We've hit um, what was the Job thirty eight? You know, the stars. You know, Isaiah fourteen. You could throw in there. I mean, there's plenty of this astral talk. You know, in the Old Testament. So let's just let's just go down that trajectory a little bit. And talk about, you know, what about the astral approach? Now, On and Beale are skeptical of the approach generally. They don't really seem to connect the dots here between glorified humans and the celestial star language stuff. I don't, I don't know why, because it's, it's not hard to see. Maybe it's just they're not used to, to looking at things that way. But again, it's not hard to see. And if you want the primary source data, go to the blog series by, by Burnett. And you'll get references there, too, in bibliography. So On and Beale, you're a little skeptical of the approach. They presume, maybe this is why, they presume the imagery must come from the Babylonian Zodiac and that Old Testament correlations are more likely. Now, wait a minute. Are you suggesting then, professors, that astral imagery in the Old Testament doesn't have a connection to Babylonian stuff? If you're suggesting that, you would be incorrect, Ezekiel 1. Okay, we'll get there in a moment. Now, it is true that the zodiacal system would have its point of origin in Mesopotamia. Okay, everybody sort of knows that. But all cultures of the Mediterranean region, including that of ancient Israel, the Second Temple Jews, they all utilize the zodiac for observing the celestial sky. So, so big deal if it comes from Babylon. Everybody used it. It's kind of like a meaningless objection. Plus, if you throw Ezekiel 1 in there, it's it's kind of a misguided objection. Now, there's a good deal of evidence for Jewish astrological beliefs in Second Temple Jewish texts. And this evidence should not, let me emphasize this, this evidence should not be interpreted as a concession to heterodox pagan religion. Rather, Judaism held to its theological orthodoxy, parsing astronomical phenomena and astrological concepts through a belief in Yahweh as the ruler of the cosmos. You know, and this blend actually gets visible representation by zodiac mosaics in ancient synagogues. Yes, there are zodiac mosaics in ancient synagogues. Now, if you want, again, some, some sources here, just generally um, something that's accessible online, I would say probably the best thing to look up on you know, using Google is uh, look, Author's name is Lester Ness, L-E-S-T-E-R-N-E-S-S, Lester Ness, and you'll find his book, Written in the Stars, Ancient Zodiac Mosaics. Uh, it's his dissertation. He did his dissertation at the University, or Miami University of Ohio under uh, Edwin Yamauchi, who is uh, an evangelical, and so is Lester Ness. But it's, it's a really good uh, dissertation. I think he teaches, I don't know if he still teaches, but he taught for many years in China. Uh, Lester Ness did, um, but he put his dissertation online. So there you go. You can have it. Um, it's also been published in hard copy form too. I mean, there are other sources that, um, you know, you can just, you know, use Google Scholar for this sort of thing, Zodiac, Mosaics, Judaism. You're going to find lots of stuff. But anyway, that, that one's free and accessible. So back to the, to the point here. The fact that you could have zodiac imagery, who cares if it comes from Babylon? That, that's where astronomy stuff came from, and everybody's using it. Number two, well, so does Ezekiel 1. We don't, we don't look at Ezekiel 1 askance, you know, for that. 
And, and third, we have primary source, primary, you know, primary source data, let's put it that way, that Jews did have zodiacal thinking as, you know, in their theology, that it didn't steer them away from Orthodox Yahwism because Yahweh was the one who created these objects, wasn't he? And he is their master. What, what, what Jews and later Christians rejected in terms of astrology stuff is the idea that the objects in the sky could, could dictate and control individual fate. That was theologically anathema because only God is sovereign, period. Okay? These things do not decree individual fate. They, they serve God. They serve their creator. Anyway, let's go back to the whole approach. You know, scholars who have championed the, uh, the astral zodiac approach are few. There aren't many of these. Uh, the most notable contemporary scholar is the late Bruce Malina. Uh, Dr. Malin uh, passed away a few years ago. Uh, he was a New Testament scholar specializing in applying the social sciences to New Testament culture and interpretation. And Malina argued for the astral view based on several textual considerations that were then parsed according to ancient astronomical or astrological thought. If you want to get sort of his whole commentary on Revelation, it's published in a book. It's still you know, available on Amazon. It's called The Genre and Message of the Book of Revelation. And the subtitle is something about star journeys and visions or whatever. Okay. Now, I've said before on the podcast that, that the book has, I think, rightly been reviewed uh, negatively in that Malina neglects to connect this stuff to Old Testament material. I think that's a legitimate criticism. In other words, he, he sees the astral road and, and gets on it and never departs and, and never bothers to, to sort of try to marry it to Old Testament material. That, that's, a, that's, a, that's a legitimate criticism. However... He has a lot of data, <laughs> you know, that, that really makes sense. So, so I, the last sentence I, or sentence of a few seconds ago, I said something like, you know, what Malin is arguing for is he, he's looking at the text. And there are certain features of, of, the, of the Revelation 4 and 5 vision that John has. And, and, he, and he pulls those out. He observes those things. And then he interprets them according to ancient astronomical, astrological thought. Here, let me give you some examples. Of, of how this this approach would, would sort of work. First, the throne of Revelation 4 and 5 is, drumroll please, heavenly. In other words, it's said to be in the heavens. Revelation 4, 1 and 2, it just says that point blank. So Malin is like, well, why don't we consider the heavens then? If that's where the vision you know, is, is sort of situated. Number two, God's throne is situated above the firmament. We know this from the Old Testament. And the firmament was conceived as this solid dome over the earth in ancient cosmology. It's this, we're talking about the firmament created in Genesis 1-6 that separated the waters below it from the waters above it. And Genesis 1-6 is your verse. You could compare that to Proverbs 8-27 and 28, Job 37-18, which has the, the, the firmament being solid and hard as brass and, and these, this kind of language, okay? God, in the Old Testament, quote, walks upon the vault, in this firmament, the vault of heaven. He walks on it, Job twenty-two fourteen, Psalm 29, 10 says, the Lord sits enthroned over the flood. In other words, over these waters up there above the firmament. God builds, quote, he builds his upper chambers in the heavens and founds his vault upon the earth. Amos 9, 6, the dome rests upon the earth and God lives above it. 
In Revelation 4, 5, meteorological phenomena emanate from the throne. Malinus says, hey, have you read verse 5 in Revelation 4? You get flashes of lightning, peals of thunder. That's like sky stuff, okay, up there. So consequently, Malinus says, the sea of glass before the throne, and really under the throne, is likely to be understood as the firmament. Malinus would say, well, let's try that out. Let's just, you know, let's just put that one away and, and consider it. Third, given that the cherubim imagery of Ezekiel 1 repurposed in Revelation 4, corresponds to the four points of the Babylonian zodiac, an astral significance to John's throne description and 24 elders seems to make sense. Now, you know, we talked about this uh, before as far as um, the Ezekiel 1 imagery. Uh, We've we've spent some time before on the podcast in that material. And if you remember, I I, I cited Dan Block, his commentary on, on Ezekiel. Ezekiel 1, he makes this point, you know, the, the four faces of the cherubim or the four cardinal points of the Babylonian zodiac, and the theology is significant. You know, you have, you have the eyes and the wheels, okay? The wheel is a circuit. It goes around, okay? And you've got eyes and the wheels, and depending on how you take chapter 10, verse 12, you could have the, the eyes in, you know, the, the, the creatures. You certainly have the eyes and the creatures in Revelation, and eyes and the creatures and the wheels, and they all have eyes. This is constellations, and constellations go around. They have cycles. Again, this is astronomical slash astrological imagery that Ezekiel is using in chapter one of his vision. This is what he sees. And what does it communicate? Okay, what, what do constellations and stars and rotating cycles in the heavens do? They map time. And, and why is that important? Because History proceeds through time. And the messaging is, this: all of this is controlled. The passage of time and history and human destiny is controlled by whoever sits on the throne in the midst of all this. And in Ezekiel's vision, it's not a Babylonian deity like Marduk. It's Yahweh. So there they are, the exiles. Ezekiel has this vision. And the point of the vision is to say, you know, like, like preachers like to say, God is still on the throne. Yeah, we're kicked out of the land. You know, we, we're apostates. We violated the covenant. But God is still with us. He still has a plan. He is still in control. Now, I would suggest that John knows that. He understands Ezekiel 1. He understands the astral imagery. He understands the theological teaching point, and he uses that material or, again, God providentially gives him the material by virtue of the vision. You know, it's probably you know, a little bit of both. To communicate the same idea. Revelation is what? It's an apocalypse. Bad stuff is coming down the road. It's the end of days. Who's in control of all that? Who's going to make sure that the righteous are vindicated? Who's going to make sure that the nations are judged? And, of course, they're gods. Why, that would be Yahweh's counsel. Okay, God is still on the throne. He is still ruling with his counsel like he you know, did, frankly, in the book of Ezekiel, but also you know, all these other passages we've cited, Isaiah, Daniel 7. Again, it is God. Think of Daniel 7. It is God who decides the flow of history and the destiny of empires, including his enemies. 
So I, I think John is trying to communicate the same things. Now let's go back a little more detail with the whole astral approach to Revelation 4. A little bit of ancient astronomy talk here. Egypt and Babylon, okay, they're, they're both going to factor in here because of some terminology and the way they understood things. So what Malina does is he, he, you know, he makes these sort of observations, and I just you know, sort of create, create a, a paraphrase list you know, from his material. And, and again, he's suggesting, look, you know, you got all this stuff to consider from an astral perspective. Maybe we ought to, maybe we ought to do that. And he moves from the textual observations to arguing that the elders specifically were decans. That's D-E-C-A-N-S. Decans are groups of stars that ancient cultures used to mark out specific phases or portions of the night sky. To be more technical, decan comes from the Greek word deca, ten. And the word, quote, is a creation of the Hellenistic period to designate the astral deities who dominate over every 10 degrees of the circle of the zodiac. That's Mal on the page 94. So a decan is a portion of the sky, in, in this, in, by virtue of the terminology, of, you know, 10 degrees. Now, Egypt and Babylon had a decan system of 36. 36 times 10, 360 degrees is a circle. It makes good sense. So Egypt and Babylon had 36 decans dividing the sky into 36 sections of 10 degrees for their 360-degree system. The book of Revelation, you know, is a, is a product of a little bit of a later period, Hellenistic period. And the Hellenistic sort of approach to this differed from the older, you know, 36. Okay, it opted for the number 24. Malina writes this. He says, Herodotus records that, quote, the Greeks learned about the sundial and the gnomon. Again, this is time and measurement stuff. And the 12-fold division of the day from the Babylonians. So Babylon did use 12 to chop up the day. Okay, so Herodotus records that the Greeks learned that from them. And he says, Malinite, you know, continues, he says, By the 5th century BC, the civilized world from Babylon to Greece knew of 12 lunar months of 30 days. Then on the analogy of the year, the day, daylight plus nighttime, was divided into 12 larger, what they called double hours, and 360 smaller units. Does this sound familiar? We have a 24-hour day, and, you know, the, the 360 is 60, you know, divisible by 60, 60 minutes. Okay, so, you know, we inherit parts of this too, all right? So on analogy of the year, the day, daylight plus nighttime, was divided into 12 larger double hours and 360 smaller units. These time units were connected with the circular course of the sun, the moon, and the stars in terms of the same procedure. A circle's circumference consisted of 12 equal double segments and 360 lesser units in the Hellenistic system. Thus, by the time of John's gospel, now pay attention to this, First century. By the time of John's gospel, it is no surprise when Jesus asks, theoretically, are there not 12 hours in the day? It's John 11, 9. It, it shows they're using this system. These 12 hours, Malina writes, corresponding to the 12 divisions of the celestial circle are in fact double hours, hence 24 in all. Consequently, our seer, John, of the Apocalypse, Book of Revelation, our seer could see 24 elders about the central throne of God. 
In a number of Israelite inscriptions from around the Mediterranean, a council of elders was called a gerousia or a decania, <laughs> while a member of this council was called presbutes or presbuteros, which is the term translated in Revelation 4 for elder. Presbutes, presbuteros, these were synonyms for the Latin decurio and the Greek decanos. There you go. So, you know, it's the end of the Malina quote. For Malina, the fact that the elders surrounded the throne of God, you know, was also visually significant. To him, it was an interpretive clue, along with all this other stuff. This description, Malina points out, and he's right, is unique in divine council scenes, where the members of the council typically stand either before the Lord, like Job 1, Job 1, 6, Job 2, 1, Daniel 7, 10 has that language, or they stand to the left and the right. That's 1 Kings 22. Divine council members are, of course, the members of the heavenly host, the stars of God. This unique encircling, now catch what Malin is angling for with the circle thing, surrounding the throne. This unique encircling of the celestial council members, therefore, refers to stars encircling the throne of God in the heavens. For Malina, this arrangement depicted the rotating cycle of the zodiac signs that encompassed the decans, which were the elders. Now, he goes on. Malina cites comments of classical writer Diodorus Siculus. It's 2.31.4 for those who want to look it up whose writings date to just before the Christian era. So he just, he cites Diodorus in favor of his approach. He says, Diodorus wrote, Beyond the circle of the zodiac, the Babylonians designate 24 other stars, of which one half, they say, there's your 12 and 12, are situated in the northern parts and one half in the southern. And of these, those which are visible, they assign, Babylonians assign to the world of the living, while those which are invisible, they regard as being adjacent to the dead. And so they call them judges of the universe. <laughs> so he said, look, the Babylonian 12 and 12 thing, you know, they, you know to, they're collectively called the judges of the universe. Decastas ton halon. Now the wording here, judges, pretty obviously, fits the context of Revelation 4 and 5 because this is the divine council scene that is convened to render justice in the last days. Now, again, you, you can get Mal in this book if you want more of this kind of stuff, but you know, th that's really fascinating. Okay, it, it's, it's really fascinating. And I think it's worth consideration and worth looping into this whole question of who are the 24 elders? Are they supernatural beings? Are they glorified righteous? Are they the stars? Yeah, I think all of these things are in play. It's really difficult to imagine that all of this, this stuff, all of these data, just, just take what we just went through with Malin. It's really hard to imagine that it's all coincidental or irrelevant to John's description in Revelation 4 and 5. You know, in light of the use of astral language and metaphor for the divine counsel in biblical thought generally, particularly in light of Ezekiel's vision and its zodiacal correspondence, which John uses quite a bit. I mean, we got the cherubim right in here. You know, that was the last episode of the podcast. We talked about the cherubim. I mean, it's right there. You know, in, in light of astral language, metaphor, Ezekiel's vision, it seems best to include, to include the astral approach alongside the motifs that identify the elders with both 
supernatural members of the council and glorified believers in the council. In other words, I don't see an obvious need to pick one of these three possibilities. You know, the Old Testament council language employs astral terminology, suggests a glorified destiny for believers in that council. The New Testament solidifies the latter concept. A passage like Daniel 12.3, in fact, merges the ideas, again, in its foreshadowing. Quote, those who are wise shall sign like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. By the way, that's day and night right there. Brightness of the sky above, and like the stars forever and ever. 12 and 12. Okay, the grand idea is that God and his counsel control the flow of history and destiny. And these images communicate that truth. And John's doing the same thing Ezekiel's trying to do. It's going to get bad on earth. This is an apocalypse. This is the end of days. Who is in control? Is our, is our destiny, is your destiny as a believer secure when basically the whole thing explodes? And the answer is, yeah. Yeah, it is. In fact, in fact, on the other side of it, you're going to emerge as glorified children and co-rulers with God. And again, he's trying to communicate these ideas using all of this imagery. So I think, who are the 24 elders? What are they? I think it's all three. I think all three are in play. All right, Mike, part three, just like that. Uh, it's amazing how much like is that. packed into Revelation 4. I know. Three hours of I know. Old Testament good stuff. I love it. Yep. Thank you, John. <laughs> <laughs> it's well, messy, but thank you. We said this is yep. going to be a, a, a long process, but uh, I know we've talked about this before, about how seminary students aren't really being taught to connect those dots from the Old Testament to the New Testament, but uh, hopefully yeah. we're changing minds here. Yeah, and I, I think I think it's generally, you know, not, and I'm, I'm not going to say that this podcast is responsible because, it, you know, it's not, although we're, we're playing a role, especially in people who are not enrolled in seminary classes. And, I, and honestly, I think we are ahead in, in a lot of respects, but I do think it's changing. People are paying, you know, professors and, of course, their students you know, they, whether they like it or not, are paying more attention, you know, to seeing how the Old Testament is repurposed in the new, seeing how Second Temple literature, again, produced by people who revered the Old Testament as the Word of God and wrote about it, how that material was helpful and influential and meaningful to New Testament writers. And, you know, we, the more aware we are of it, the better readers we will be. All right. We're looking forward to chapter five next week and uh with that mike yeah. i want to thank everybody for listening to the naked bible podcast god bless thanks for listening to the naked bible podcast to support this podcast visit www.nakedbibleblog.com to learn more about dr heiser's other websites and blogs go to www.drmsh.com 